I, I'm not that old. I'm the same age as Zoe, Zoe Deschanel. And like, oh, we know Mr. Harrelson. Please stop saying that. So. <laughs> anyway. Please stop saying that. Yeah. That's great. Uh, well, it's good to have thanks you Thanks for having on. me on. Yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be fun. Um, I mean, you've listened. It's kind of a free-flowing show. I mean, this is the show. We could we could go ahead and say, you're, you're... hello and welcome to Thinking Religion. I'm Thomas Whitley. I'm Sam Harrelson. Is that my turn? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that makes me sound like a co-host. Well, you are. Well, today. <laughs> don't 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 be presumptuous. I'm Lauren Larkin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So thank you for coming on, Lauren. So Lauren, um, I'm going to read part of your bio that I can read from okay. from what you sent us. Um, you are. Uh, uh, part of the Episcopalian uh, denomination. Do you call do you call yourselves a denomination? Or, or I mean, you're you're a yeah. You're we're, a, what's what's the word? We're the Episcopal Church. Yeah, so the Episcopal Church, but it, but it, the Anglican Communion, right? Yes, the Anglican Communion is a larger, broader concept that loops us into a myriad of different countries. Um, but in the United States, we are the Episcopal Church. It used to be the Episcopal Church of the United States of America, but they've shortened it back down to, which I think it still is technically true, but um, I, it's the, the Episcopal Church now. Okay. Um, referred to as tech sometimes, T-E-C. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And, and you have an MDiv and an MTS, or I'm sorry, MST. Yes. Um, not MTS. Well, yeah, I guess it is MTS. Um, and... You are on a pretty funny podcast, which I enjoyed listening yes. to. Do you want to plug that okay. for a minute? Please. Yeah, you you plug it. Tell tell us tell people what you want to oh. hear about it. I, I'll, I'll oh, tell you sure. my opinion after that. <laughs> um, I okay. So so my friends, uh, one of my best friends, um, Sarah Terrace and I, we um, we got together and wanted to bring together a podcast where it was all of my academic research and her um, fundamentalist experiences and coming out of fundamentalism. And we wanted to bring those two together in conversation um, in, in a podcast form. We didn't want it to be a blog. So we decided when we developed the concept of Azer Uncaged, Azer being the, um, the word that is translated uh, as helper, in Genesis 2.18, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suited for him. Um, it's And so we, you know, group that up with woman uncaged. Essentially is what we're trying to say is that we've, um, between my academics and her experiences coming out of fundamentalism, that we wanted to bring a, some sort of verbal dialogue to other women who would be... Um, kind of going through the same thing or wanted to know more about the creation of women or the woman in the Old Testament or um, Jesus and women, uh, Paul and women. Um, and that was our first season pretty much was just going through and really focusing in on the role of women in these different aspects of the biblical narratives, uh, biblical narrative um, and uh, just and then and then real life, too. And so we talk a lot about real life experiences. Um, we spent our second season sort of um meandering around we did some book reviews um sarah sarah just uh dropped a mini book it just went um i believe it its release date was late august so august 28th yeah. very recently um and there'll be a link in the show about, notes for that uh, yeah yeah there's yeah it's it's a fantastic little mini book on females uh female sexuality lust and and the god 
possible. And um, it's by no means like comprehensive of all of the possible aspects of female sexuality. And it is written for a specific audience, but it nonetheless is a, a message that needs to be articulated and, and, and gotten out there. And um, Sarah's the woman to do that. Um, and we have a lot of fun. Um, you guys, when I first heard you guys, I thought, they're sort of like male versions of us <laughs> with the way that we, the way that you interact and kind of segue and then come back to a topic and then you kind of go off again. And I really enjoyed it. I was laughing hysterically throughout the first episode that I listened to um, and have been eager always to come back. And so I told Sarah, I was like, we, this is, this is funny. This is, this is what I think we're sort of going for, which is approachable, approachable theology. Um, that's not too intimidating or too, um, you know, the, the heady concepts that are brought lower um, to be understood and digested. So, yeah. I mean, um, so anyway, that's and that's that's kind of one of the things uh, I was hoping we could talk about tonight. I, I mean, you know, looking at your bio and, and what I know about you, I mean, you have a background in systematic theology and biblical studies and gender studies and some of these heavier topics. And, you know, God knows Thomas has, you know, his his stuff with the corporation. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, you know, Thomas has an. Hey, I tweeted about the corporations on Labor Day. <laughs> so, big Labor Day for me. I had I had to chug a beer. I, I literally like put a key into the beer and like like cut a hole in the beer and chugged it when I saw that. Because I, I get alert every time Thomas tweets. And this is how we keep up with each other. Um, so my phone is constantly going off on, on days when Thomas has his 30 tweet tweet storms. But, uh, you know, Thomas has an incredible academic background and and, uh, you know, and I've got my my baggage or whatever. But, uh, you know, we, we kind of looked at this show and we've gone through many iterations over the last, what, 10 years or so, Thomas. Um, it's, been, it's been a long time. Eight years, 10, nine years, seven years. Um, but, you know, so I, I listen to Sam Harris. Do you, do you all listen to Sam Harris? Um I don't think so. Uh, it's a great podcast. Hold on, let me yeah, let me let me pull this up on the uh, on the old uh, on the old Overcast, which ninety percent of our listeners are on the Overcast. All right, so waking up with Sam Harris, he's a philosopher, but he gets people uh, onto the show like um, Gavin DeBecker, David Brooks, um, Max Tegmark. And he had one yeah, Max Tegmark was was the philosopher about the future of intelligence, and he's talking about AI and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's it's kind of a contemporary contemporary philosophy, but it's a very serious podcast. But he has hundreds of thousands of, of downloads each show. <laughs> so every time I listen to his show, which is weekly, I think, wow, that's a great show. And his name is very close to my name. And maybe we should we should be more serious. And, and I should stop being the jokey jokey person and let Thomas be Thomas, um, <laughs> who's not jokey jokey. Thomas isn't saying anything, which is... <laughs> Kind of no, I'm, just, just, I'm just trying to see where you're going with i mean i know where you're going with this <laughs> you know, but, yeah so so yeah. Uh, you know when, yeah. when we talk about like the arc of this show um compared to things like like you know your podcast with sarah which is fantastic um you know and, and weighing that against you know kind of kind of the the subject of of her book which is um you know I, i'm reading it right now which is really heavy and my wife mm-hmm. is reading it and you know we're talking about it from kind of a partner point of view of our different perspectives because she grew up fundamentalist and has a completely different perspective than I do. Um, and, and it's, it's fascinating to see how we portray ourselves as characters on these podcasts, um, you know, in, in different ways than we do in something like a book or, or something like a writing. So yeah, I get that. Mm-hmm. I get that. And that search for meaning, I guess. 
and, and how to, how well, to and you, that. I mean, you know, I think we had a pretty good conversation about this, um, a group of us on Twitter last week, right? And kind of what, what kind of space are we trying to build here? And we talk about this, and Sam and I are big fans of breaking the fourth wall. Um, but, you know, we're just trying to build kind of an authentic space that we want to be in because it's our space and we're building it. So, you know, for a long time, we kind of said, basically, we just hit record on the conversations we're already having. Um, and I think that that's what has given our show some staying power. It's what kept it's what's kept us, I think, doing it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's what has also allowed um, you know, people to feel like they can be a part of it. They can reach out to us. Uh, and then we do what we think are consistently great things like we're doing today, which is taking people that listen, you know, find us, listen to the show and like, Hey, this is great. And then build a relationship with them and then have them on the show. Um, because mm-hmm. they have really awesome things to offer. Right. So kind of building this community where we're not trying to, um, become world famous that we're not going to, you know, scoff at that if that happens. Um, <laughs> and we're not going to turn away your money if you want to go to thinking.fm and then click on donate. But, right, that's not that's not kind of the goal here. Um, you know, I think we've, we're continuing to build a community that um, in, some, in some ways reflects us and in some ways doesn't, which is kind of really interesting to see what happens. Like, you, you have no control over it once it leaves, right? Once it goes out, yep. you have no control over what happens. But but anyway, I, I think we're pretty happy with the community that we've built. And we've talked a lot about, uh, should we be a little bit more formal? Should we be more serious? Should we have, like, clear segments? And we've played around with that some, but it's just it's just not really where we kind of really want to be with this particular show. Yeah, that's – and Sarah and I have said something similar. It's – when we first went live, it was, you know, essentially what we're doing is we're letting you all into the phone slash text slash DM messages that we conversations that we have all the time. Right. Like you're getting just an hour of what of, of a snippet of what it is that we are talking behind the scenes. Um, and we really wanted it to be that way. We wanted it to be accessible. We, we wanted people. Because we we do where it's uh, Sarah and me for one episode, and then um, it's it's Sarah, me, and then someone who we, we we're interviewing, um, and we like to bring in other voices and have them uh, participate. One of my favorite episodes was um, with a, a friend of ours, Blake Collier. We talked about horror films and gender, and um, even some racism too. And we really got into some of that. Um, that that genre of the film and really pulled it apart. And that isn't necessarily Azer uncaged material, but it fit and it worked and it was fun and it was um, really kind of kind of neat to see that come together and work as well as it did with you know some of our concepts that we bring to the table. But um, that's what we re- we really, really want to have dialogue. We really want to be almost as if you had shown up at our house and we were already having a conversation and we included you in on that sort of more of a familial relational rather than a uh, didactic. We're teaching you something. Um, So that's sort of similar. Yeah. I think the great thing about doing a show that's ostensibly about religion is that you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Right. Because at some point everything, you know, we can make it fall into the category of religion. So we talk about tech and leather goods a lot, too. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So I guess, um, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is if you want to, you know, kind of briefly. So Sam's kind of hit the highlights of your bio. But if you want to briefly talk about um, kind of where you are now and and how you got there, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Um, 
I um, love talking about myself, um, uh, which is sarcastic because it's hard for me to do this. But um, I'm I'm currently a um, I've, I'm a high school teacher, private high uh, at a private Episcopal school in Louisiana. Um, and this is a new job for me. I've spent the past little bit over a decade, about 11 years, being a stay-at-home mom. Um, and in that 11 years, I earned my two degrees and um, got into uh, writing for a few blog for a few blogs, uh, editing um, theological work, um, speaking, doing some stuff like that. Um, and I, I stumbled upon this job because I was um, reluctantly put into um, or reluctant, the reluctant ordinance is really probably like my secret, um, identity name. Um, but I, I didn't want to be ordained. I've never wanted to be ordained, but, um, I had a number of people over the course of that decade that I was a stay at home mom tell me it's clearly that you need to be preaching and teaching. So finally, um, I just got tired of people telling me this. And when the canon of vocations for central Florida said, I think you should be ordained. I just said, fine, fine. You guys win. (laughs) (laughs) I'll go ahead and start pursuing ordination. And, um, it was once, once the ball got rolling there, then it was, you know, it took me about six months before I was, um, ready to be ordained to the diaconate. And then in the Episcopal tradition, we have a six month, um, I I, want to say waiting period, but that sounds really coarse. (laughs) Um, but it's kind of like before you can buy a gun right before you can get <laughs> right, the keys yeah. to the kingdom of heaven <laughs> yeah we gotta put you on probation yeah it's 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 six months of you know doing deacon work um and so that's so you don't you don't sort of uh, i think it's a way of grounding us that we're you know the thing that we like to say is oh we're always all deacons no matter where we are and that's true and i and i, I agree with that um but i think it's you know it is seen as a stopping ground for us uh you know members of the ordination cycle that are on our way to the priesthood. Um, and then I was ordained recently, um, at the end of the beginning, mid, mid August, um, all my dates are running together right now. Mid August, I was ordained to the priesthood. Um, and in the process, uh, I got a call sometime in June, uh, Memorial day, in fact, or right after there about, um, a, a rector who was looking for a high school religion teacher for his high school that was attached to his church. And so I said, well, darn, I've never, you know, seen myself as a parish priest. I've always kind of loathed the idea, kind of makes my stomach wrench. And this would be ideal if I could be a little bit involved with the church um, and do a lot more classroom teaching. And so I wound up making the email, writing the emails, making the phone calls. And then within like four days, I was hired. Um, And it was pretty much we're moving to Louisiana and now we have to, you know, get a family of five all the way over from Western Colorado to, um, Louisiana. Yeah. I was going to say, so, when, when you first, when we first started, um, I don't know, interacting on Twitter, you were in Colorado. So I was right. surprised all of a sudden you were in Louisiana, but that's, that's really interesting. Um, and, and yeah, I, yeah, I definitely, definitely understand that. And, and Thomas was as well with his teaching background. I'm sure I don't want to speak for Thomas ever because that would be weird. <laughs> No comment. No comment. <laughs> oh, but uh, I'll, I'll say this. So a couple of years ago, I and and well, I talked about this on the show. I, I took a job. I took a full time job um, for right. a little bit for a couple of months. <laughs> and the, 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 the I took a full time job for a little bit. <laughs> First time in you know ten years. 
the, the competitor to that was a, a, a teaching gig as a teaching chaplain at an Episcopal school in South Carolina. I won't say where, but so I, I'm really intrigued by this because I'm, you know, it, I had the opportunity and I was like, ah, I, I kind of want to do it. Like it'd be fun to be a Baptist, you know, teaching as an Episcopalian. Um, anyway, so I, yeah, I, I, that I, would be interesting. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, side side note, but I, I just wanted to. So uh, did you interject? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Lauren, did you did you grow up in the Episcopal Church? Oh no, 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 no. Yeah, that, that was. Um, yeah, I wanted to get you there too. I uh, I'm I was actually uh, you know raised Catholic, um, but it was this was my experience. I would be dropped off at the church, and my parents would drive away, <laughs> and I would have to go to church. Um, or I would have to go to catechism and I went through all the motions because that's what, you know, we, they did. They, they just went through the basic motions to kind of reaffirm that they were still Catholics. And so, um, church twice a year, um, during confirmation, my brother and I would be dropped off and left for about an hour and a half and then picked up again. And, um, so there was no real affinity for the church, um, as an institution, uh, it just sort of was like the thing you leave right after you get the bread and the wine, right? Like you just, you got your snack and then you left. Um, and that's how it was sort of portrayed to me. And, um, I really wasn't even, even remotely interested in being Christian or believing any God whatsoever, um, for, for a long time. And so when I, um, had some life experiences that caused, kind of caused me to be at the bottom of the rope, um, I wound up going back to church and the church that I decided to go to was, um, a church that I had heard of at some point in my high school years. And I just decided, well, I'll just go there. And it was an Episcopal church. And, um, I wound up going and being received into the Episcopal communion or the Episcopal church. And then a member of this Episcopal church in Darien, Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut, in fact. Um, and so that's sort of how I wound up Episcopalian sort of random happenstance a little bit like it wasn't like I sought out the best denomination for me it was this makes sense and it's the only church that I know to go to right now <laughs> and I need to go to church yeah that's, and so yeah it, it sounds like now I'm ordained <laughs> yeah it, it sounds like when I when I drop my uh, daughter my, how that works. my 10 year old off at you know soccer practice and I kind of drop her off and she goes in and <laughs> I pick her up like two hours later and everything's you know she, she's done her thing yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. That's interesting. Connecticut has a really interesting, and we don't need to go into the weeds on this. I just want to point that out because I got to live in Connecticut for a couple of years, and and I went to a Congregationalist church, being from oh, that yeah. persuasion, and I loved it. And we we had a we had a um, a lesbian uh, pastor, and it was right mm -hmm. across the street from my apartment when I was at grad school, and and uh, it was just a fantastic experience coming from the Southern Baptist tradition, which is you know all kinds of messed up. And, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it was, it was really my first time encountering that, you know, and I'm, and I'm taking classes in grad school on the, the homoeroticism and Jonah. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, like there's this whole other world out there. So, um, yeah, I, I love the, the Connecticut religious landscape plus, you know, Roger Williams and all that jazz. But, um, you know, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, I know Darian well, been through there many times. There's a dog track there. Yeah, I was, I, I was, Terrible. there's, there, there's a, off track bedding uh, dog track, right? Yeah, yeah. Off, yeah, something like that. I don't know. There's just tons of stuff in Connecticut. Um, I was raised in Westport, 
Oh, okay. Which is just Westport. Like just a little bit further down on the Merritt Parkway. Yeah. If you're in that I, I area. Merritt Park. I, I lived in Wallingford and and Okay. East Haven and and uh in, in that in that area. So know it well. Yeah. <laughs> Merritt Parkway is one of the it's always the nicest highway you'll ever be on. It is amazing. It is amazing. I, I drove through there a couple of years ago. It's it's fantastic. It is. It's and it's and it, everyone goes. At least I was driving up from college with a friend who's from Texas, and I said, "Kathy, when you get to the Merritt Parkway, you're just going to go pedal to the metal in this beast of car that you're driving, and you're going to have to go at least seventy because no one goes slow on the Merritt Parkway because there's nowhere for cops to hide. Right. So it's like it's like a Connecticut. It's like a New England Audubon. It's totally the Audubon, and, and the, the bridges are beautiful, and they're they're all like early mid yep twentieth uh, century, and uh, and and you go so instead of going through New York, you kind of go up and go through the Tappan Zee and go through this beautiful part of Connecticut. Yep. And yeah, yep. yeah. every time I go up north, even, even if I'm going to like, you know, New Haven or, or Boston, I always uh, take the take the Merit. That's that's awesome. Oh, yeah. The Merit's the best. It's it's one of the only historically preserved highways yeah. because of all those bridges. Yeah. So that's why the road is always immaculate. Yeah, it is fantastic. will always be conducive to speeding on like the state is helping us speed on that road <laughs> well, that's how every highway should be oh and, and the last time I, I was there i guess a year and a half ago i had to go to boston for a, a trade show thing and i was like well i could fly but i like driving so i drove to boston and it was in the winter and so it was snowing and it was beautiful um but i, I got off on this one um off ramp which is you know very random and few on, on the Merritt parkway and there was a, a tesla charging station there and i was like ah oh, connecticut like you, you don't get the tesla charging stations in south carolina so I was no. uh, yeah. I was excited about that. Anyway, well, so uh, y'all done having your little Connecticut moment now. <laughs> Connecticut's such a cool state, <laughs> and and there was a hummus cool there was state. a hummus uh, uh, stand outside of my apartment. It was fantastic. Uh, so it's, it's been a big week, as we like to say on the show every week. That's an evergreen hashtag uh, tweet, and and taking Lauren from from your perspective uh, from a Catholic slash Episcopalian perspective. And then Thomas as a, God, I don't know what you are, Gnostic slash Baptist slash Presbyterian something. And then my perspective, when we look at the week that we've had, it seems like identity politics really are kind of becoming such a central conversation. So I, I can't go on Facebook now without seeing people that would have never talked about identity politics, whether it's DACA or whether it's, you know, the, 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 the Nashville statement, you know, like Facebook for me used to be this place where I would go and there were, there were a picture of kids and, and cats and pets and, and people at the beach. And now it's like this, this, this kind of battleground of either you're for this or you're for that. And a lot of it seems to hinge on where you come from and what your identity politics kind of says about the world. So for for me, one of the things I wanted to talk to both of you about, because I think this is really interesting, is how do you see religion in, in particular as kind of I don't know, as flawed and, and fraud as as it, as it can be and, and is in, in many circumstances? How is that being used in the public space um, to further agendas without explicitly saying, oh, well, this is a religious context? Because I, I don't think it's any accident that the national statement came out around the same time that this you know the the DACA thing is coming out and uh, the Charlottesville episode and and all of these incredible um, events that that we're seeing happen in in the U.S. 
kind of a wide open question, so take it however. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you start, Lauren. Me? I'm still trying to figure out half the language. All right, so so let's um, let's start let's start with the Nashville statement. Uh, did y'all both look over? Yeah. yeah. Wait, can I can I just ask? Can I ask a yeah, question? Please. Can I ask a question? Because um, sometimes terminology is not my forte. Like I understand concepts more than I understand the I understand the names of concepts. So when you say identity politics, can you define that for me so I know what you mean by that? Uh, I, I'm just kind of talking in the in the general kind of uh, I, I guess non-academic understanding of that in in the sense that when um, you you assign yourself a a certain identity, I'm a a white male, cisgendered, whatever. I mean, not that everyone says that. Uh, And here are my politics. Or I'm a Donald Trump voter. Here are my politics. I'm a um, a, a liberal Democrat. I'm a progressive. I'm Antifa. I'm, you know, whatever. And, And coming at the world from that perspective, I guess. Okay. Well, I, I think like from the political sense, which is, you know, I think the way that most people kind of encounter uh, identity politics, it has often been used um, to label uh, interests of groups that are not white and male. Right. 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 So, okay. so you know, LGBTQ plus people, the, well, that they're just engaging in identity politics. Well, okay, you know, okay. Latino, you know, Democrats are kind of reaching out to Latinos. Well, they're just engaging in identity politics, right? And, and kind of the overarching, um, what goes unsaid there, which is always the question we should be asking, right, is, okay, we hear what you're saying, but what are you not saying? Yeah. Um, is that the default is white and male. Um, and, and that if you're just kind of advocating for, for policies that you think help people like you and you happen to be white male, that's just normal. Then that's just the right kind of neutral thing to do as if, you know, that is not an identity, right? And I, and I think that um, Ta-Nehisi Coates and his fantastic book that came out, what, a year or two ago, yeah. Between the World and Me, right. kind of hit on this really well where he talked about, you know, the, the people who, um, like, basically think that they are white, right? So, um, but it's this idea that kind of, not understanding white as an identity or as a race. I mean, obviously, we're seeing this kind of bubble up post Charlottesville, post the Trump election, post Charlottesville, et cetera, with uh, white supremacy and and you know, I mean, like literal Nazis coming out and kind of um, advocating explicitly for um, white policy. You know, white favorable policies. But for a long time, identity politics has been a bit of a pejorative term, right? Kind of thrown at any group that wasn't. Uh, white and typically male as well. Yeah, and, and that's and so, I, I guess that's the interesting part. Let me just uh, about to that uh, that um, you know post Charles well not post Charlottesville but you know post whatever we we have uh, these aspects of of kind of that white hegemony that don't necessarily fit into the normative idea of being a white male you know kind of thing. So anyway, just yeah, uh, good good point, Thomas. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked just because I always assume that I understand and I like to make sure that I do so I don't, you know, say something and everyone goes, what? Um, We're used uh, to that on this show. (laughs) What? What did you just say? I don't know how to answer the question. Um, And it's not necessarily... You know, 
being uninformed as it is that this, this all is so, I have never been as into politics as I have been the past year and a half. And I don't feel like I have, um, and kind of personality type, but when I don't feel that I have a really good grasp of, um, at least a certain segment of the information, I tend to withdraw, uh, verbally from it because I don't know how to react necessarily. But the question you asked was how, how does religion play into this landscape? Like in a positive way? Or, is that what you were asking? Or, I mean, just, you know, in light of the Nashville Statement, in light of the DACA thing, in light of, uh, you know, Charlottesville, what – I'm just fascinated by the, by the different perspectives that we have represented on the show yeah. tonight. So, you know, yeah. what do we have to say? Because, I mean, it feels like, to me, every time I go on Twitter and I see someone doing a 30-tweet a uh, tweet storm about how they're opposed to the Nashville Statement – yeah, sure. You know, but what do we have to say? Or, or anytime I see someone, um, you know, doing the same thing about Charlottesville and saying, uh, this is why we need to sit down with the Nazis and have, you know, coherent conversation with them and engage them and try to love them and, and you know, rehabilitate them. It's like, well, yeah, but, but, you know, so anyway, I, I just think it's, it's such a, a weird, fertile ground right now for conversation that, that we, you know, we're all kind of taking part in, but we're not really I don't think there is a middle to find anymore, but I don't know. I, I, right. You know, like, what do we do? Like, where do we go from here? I guess is my question. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm looking around for like someone else to take the lead. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> um, right. I, I, I do think that um, my perspective as an ordained minister is that my number one job is to call out the injustice, right? So um, specifically now in our in our day and age, I've studied a lot of Luther. I understand his distinction between law and gospel, and I understand that you know when rightly used, um, or you can rightly use it in terms of you first you you, you talk about the law, God's law, and um, then you proclaim the gospel. And what I've noticed in sort of the um, the not not really dialogue, but watching different theological schools that I kind of have a foot over here and a foot over here. Um, the school that's been the school of thought that's been bothering me the most is the um, more um, uh, gospel centered approach, which defaults to a everyone just needs love, and so bringing the law to or bringing any sort of conviction or condemnation to a group of people, um, like let's bring up the, um, the Charlottesville, um, events like to, we should extend our arms and love to the, uh, the, the KKK members. I'm remembering this correctly, right. That, that caused this event to happen, right. We should be loving them because they need to have love and all that stuff. And part of me, just recoils at that idea. And I don't think it's necessarily my Catholic upbringing or, cause that was nominal, right? That was just, that was just sort of like a thing that we did. It was like families that go to Disneyland once a year, you know, like it really didn't have that much influence. What has way more influence on me now is my role as an ordained preacher or pastor, 
priest. I'll get there once I get my words down. Um, and the, <laughs> the call that I have to bring my, to open ears and to, or, or to, to, I guess I would say is just be, be the vehicle through which the spirit would proclaim a word that would open the eyes and the ears of people that are sitting and listening to me so that they can now be aware and see, because the more people that have eyes that can see and ears that can hear, the more, the more that we can rally together in terms of fighting and uh, fighting injustices and um, proclaiming on behalf of the oppressed and the voiceless. And for me, I'm, I'm in no mood to really deal with, you know, whether or not I'm being loving towards victimizers and oppressors. Like I, I have no tolerance for that. And so I don't know where that comes from apart from some sort of clear, well, I'm going to, this sounds egotistical of me to say, but like what I feel to be one of the clearer readings of the love of God for people Um, from the beginning of the, you know, biblical narrative, there's a consistent theme of taking care of the oppressed and dealing with injustice. And God looks, frowns on that. Like he, he frowns on those things, injustice and oppression. And so why am I not fighting against those? Like I'm done with the narrative that, oh, we, if we just loved all the members of the KKK, they would eventually all come around. I'm not convinced of that. Call me a cynic, but I think some law would be okay, some judgment, some something. Um, this is not right to proclaim against that uh, and in the process to open eyes. I feel that role as a teacher, too, in a high school. Um, I teach in a wealthy area, and bringing up, I brought up the Charlottesville event and had my students think about it. You know, like if I can get them to look past their, you know, $40,000 trucks that they drive to school, I've done <laughs> right. a good job. If I can get them to look outside and see human beings and not commodities, I've done my job. And I, I take that really seriously. So for me with this, you know, I, I don't know where that identity is coming from, apart from what I've been reading to be the gospel um, and what Jesus has done for like emulating him and his activity towards the people and towards how he handled oppressors and how he defended the voiceless. Think of the countless women that came to him and he healed them. Women who were ostracized, um, forced out of the camp, you know, because they weren't clean. And he, he, he relates with them. He talks with them. He heals them. Um, and so I, I can't not do that. I can't not proclaim that, that, that message. Uh, and so that's, that's, I don't know if that's even close to what it is as as a plausible answer for the question. But, um, for me, it's really, it's really going to be on my role as preacher and on my role as teacher in order to proclaim, you know, and hope that eyes and ears can be opened through proclamation. Yeah. I I mean, there, there is no answer to the, (laughs) you know, there there is no stock answer, but yeah, I mean, I I think, uh, so one of the yeah. things, so yeah, I had a little tweet storm on the Nashville statement um, because I felt like, some, you know, I had some things to say, right? and that's what Twitter's for. Um, but one of the things that bothered me most about the Nashville statement, and for our listeners that aren't aware, the Nashville statement is a statement that came out. I imagine if you're listening to our show, you probably have already heard about this, and you're obviously following us on Twitter, so that's where all of our best content is. Um it's a statement put out by the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, oh. um, or and 
basically it's 14 articles and essentially it's um, anti-homosexuality. It's anti-transgender. Um, and it basically says if you support that at all, then you're, um, that, that constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. Right? I mean, it's problematic on so many levels. But my first thought was, this is the council of biblical manhood and womanhood. Like, what do you expect? This is par for the course for them and has been since their founding. Right? They were founded to combat, you know, feminism is in kind of the the you know horribly negative um, conservative cultural um, depiction of feminism. Right, and all the bad things that you've ever heard feminism was that's what they were gonna they were kind of gonna combat. And their their like central tenet is complementarianism, which is that men and women are created to complement each other. And so they just have different roles, and this doesn't make them unequal. But, of course, in reality, it's always the man that has the leadership role and always the man that has the superior role and the woman who has the submissive and the inferior role, right? So this is par for the course for the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So I guess part of what upset me so much was the energy and effort that has been put into giving them a platform by mm. renouncing them, which is exactly what they want, right? They want a platform, and this is what I've talked about on Twitter, and then they also want to be persecuted, right? That tells them that they are being faithful to, you know, God's witness, whatever. When instead, I think that what we should be doing is, you know, exactly what you just did, Lauren, which is offering another message and saying, like, this is clearly not... Um, the majority of American Christianity these days. It's not even the majority of evangelical Christianity these days. Uh, I mean, maybe it's a little bit different story if we start talking and you know, narrowing it down just to white, white evangelical Christianity in America. But even then, um, this is not the, the stance that the majority of white evangelicals would take today. Right. And so we've talked for a while about kind of what we see with the Trump election and the overwhelming white evangelical support of Donald Trump. And I kind of this is kind of um, uh, we see I saw it again in a uh, piece that came out today in the New Republic by Sarah Jones uh, titled The National Statement is the Religious Rights Death Rattle. And that's what we've been talking about for a while. And, you know, I mean, I people have been asking for a long time. I asked a couple of years ago in a piece that I write, you know, is this, you know, kind of are we seeing the, the fall of the religious right? And in, in one way, we're not because they are as powerful as ever. But um, there are a lot of things that make me think we are kind of seeing the death throes, right? We're seeing it in the death throes. And this is a this is done out of desperation. It was done to try to uh, make a splash. It was it was done to rile people up. And you know, if those liberals are mad at you, then you must be doing something right. And mm. it's just we don't I, I don't know. It's I, there are a lot of things that I left behind when I left um, fundamentalism behind when I, you know, chose to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. And, you know, one of those was always having to kind of react, right? And so, yes, I've reacted some, but I, I think that part of what we need to do is instead of saying, oh, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, maybe just continue on, you know, with whatever message we have that we do think is right. Hopefully it's one that, you know, maybe a little bit more inclusive as well. Yeah, and, and that's a great point. And that's, I guess, one of the... Um aspects of this that, that I think is really interesting is, is that from a Protestant, I guess non-Anglican <laughs> point of view, Lauren, uh, the assumption uh, about, um, I, I don't want to say gender politics, but, but looking at things like 
the LGBT, uh, LGBTQ uh, plus community and, and how that fits into our worshiping congregations and, and those types of questions um, really has always varied between the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptist and the Cooperative Baptist and the Alliance Baptist and this Baptist and that, you know, all the other varieties we have, um, not to mention all the other strands of, of <laughs> crazy Protestants. But um, when I, I, I look at kind of how this was set up from the, the people that were propping this up, both from a financial and a, and a theological point of view, um, you know, it, it was very clearly interpreted as saying uh, this Nashville statement is, is something like the, uh, you know, the, the Council of Nicaea. Like we intentionally <laughs> called this a place yeah. name. I, I saw somebody say that. Like we intentionally called this a place name. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because we wanted to have that same tie to ancient Christianity, which you know, yeah. a it's, ugh. but b <laughs> the fact that these were evangelical, mostly Baptist or some Presbyterians, John Piper, or Reformed people, I guess, um, whatever they are. Uh, we had uh, J.I. Packer wasn't listed in there. Oh, there you go. He's Anglican. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, there are some very conservative Anglicans. That's true. Um, yep. But but coming at this from from kind of a, a Baptist lens, I guess, to have many of our evangelical, not our, but many of the Southern Baptist uh, evangelical leaders kind of sign off on this new Council of Nicaea just smacks in the face of everything that it means to be you know, of our polity. <laughs> Baptist. Yeah. Right now <laughs> uh, to be in the free oral. church tradition. Exactly. And, and we, we've always, I mean, for, for decades, even when I was a kid and I knew nothing, Jon Snow about, you know, being a Baptist or anything. Uh, I would remember people saying, wait, are you guys there? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. It got quiet. Uh, I, I, <laughs> it was weird. I, I remember people saying, Oh, well, it, if, if that comes out of Nashville, then you have to take it with a grain of salt. And I, I don't know if they were referring to Lifeway or what, but it, it was, yeah. Um, so so to see this come out of Nashville, just, you know, in the same way to see, um, you know, Trump play kind of the, these games with uh, these statements and, and to see, you know, Joel Osteen play games with, with statements and, and to see um, how in the Charlottesville police are playing games with statements about, you know, waiting to go in to, 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 you know, protect people and that kind of stuff. It, it just, it feels very different and it feels weird and, and I'm not comfortable with, um, with how we're, we're using words. I mean, look at what happened with, with, uh, you know, Reverend Rob Lee, you know, this week. Um, that, you know, we don't know the full story, of course, but I mean, basically he had to resign, um, after he came out and, and made some statements about the, uh, the statue in, in Charlottesville at the MTV VMA Awards, and it, it's been a public, and, and you can tell, like, it was a very hurtful situation for, for Rob, um, and, and it's it's frustrating to me as an old white male to see these wonderful, um, you know, sort of young pastors having to go through this period of, of um, reconciling their own prophetic calls and, and, and voices with kind of the, the the inherent politics of a, a situational congregation, even in, in his congregation was UCC of, of all people, you know, like my, my wife preaches at the UCC church here all the time. And it's, it's a very liberal congregation. And, and I love going there because it, it's, it's such a welcome change from um, some of the other contexts I've been in. Um, 
So anyway, I, I don't know. It just feels like we're we're at a weird, weird, weird uh, kind of cross current place in in American Christianity, and I don't know how this is going to shake out. And that, I I don't believe in the myth of progressive Christianity anymore, where you know everything's going to get better and um, you know cultural Christianity is going to help uh, forward our, our 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 lot in life or anything like that, because the last 20 years have, have shown that that's not the case. Um, but the world the world feels like it's changed, or the United States, it, feels, it just feels like it's changed so quickly in the last few years. And uh, I don't know what to do with that. That's not a question. I'm just making an observation. <laughs> but Sounds like a confession. <laughs> well, you know... I can absolve you. Like, uh, being a, being a, finally. <laughs> somebody, finally. <laughs> Thomas. Uh, being a cooperative Baptist, all right? So, like, we have a hiring policy. Our, our national organization has a hiring policy where we cannot hire someone who's a who's a out-practicing gay person, which blows my mind, and it blows my mind every day that, that I'm still a part of this thing. Um, but, and, and we've talked about this on Twitter, as Thomas said, but I, I feel, you know, so much baggage from that, and it's like, uh, like, why... Or how is this the situation in 2017 where, I mean, not to use the word identity politics, but identity politics really do inform so much of denominational Christianity that we still kind of cling to these ideas that, oh, it's the Wiscopalians, and then you've got the Presbyterians and the Methodists who kind of stand for kind of centrist stuff and the crazy Baptist. And, you know, like the, the, there are so many ways that we could all, in, in our individual lenses and perspectives kind of move and 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 help I don't know, not help people but but you know share the gospel or whatever we're we're seeking to do and it just seems like we're we're kind of all retreating into our caves and and putting up fences to make sure that you know our our statements don't get intermingled with others mm. yeah well i mean i don't know i so I would push back a little bit on your kind of no longer believing in the myth of progressive Christianity. Um, but I, in, in one sense, I agree with you, right? That it's not like just going to get better. Right? I, I saw a number of people on Facebook today saying, we're going to need a longer arc of the moral universe. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I do think, <laughs> right. right. But I do think that, that the time is right. And I've been saying this on the show and to most people that will listen, um, the time is ripe for, um, for lack of a better term, the rise of the religious left, because I mm. do think that that people are, um, can, even more than than they had been, uh, kind of feeling disenfranchised from and the institutional church and from religion, and I think that there are people. That, I think the religious left, in a lot of cases, uh, both on the Christian side, on the Muslim side, on the Sikh side. Um, have a lot of really uh, interesting things to offer um, people that are in that situation, right? People that are feeling those things. Some of the things that, you know, maybe I, that I went through um, as a, you know, as a much younger person that I went through personally, that people are dealing with kind of on a systemic um, institutional church level now. And and I, I think that it can't all be reactionary, right? And and we've talked about this. I mean, part of one of the biggest issues with the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, we think, is that um, for a long time, for what the past 20, 25 years, 
since they've been in existence, their identity has largely been we're not the Southern Baptist. And that that just doesn't work very long. I mean, people want you know, it's just like politics, right? We don't want to know just what you're against. We want to know what you stand for. And um, I think that a, a clear, consistent message uh, from different corners of the re- religious left uh, will find fertile ground. I mean, you're not going to get everybody, and that's okay. Um, but it's, I don't know. I mean, on, on, I guess on one hand, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that um, there is room there, and largely um, the kind of white evangelical right um, is continuing to maybe dig their own grave, right? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I, I think that um, just listening to both of you talk, I definitely don't think that I've given up hope with um, the progressive or the religious left um, at all, because I think what eventually could happen is um, that there, there, there could be a, um, a, a coming together, um, a, a, uh, a binding that um, transcends denominational boundaries, right? Because our message is the the well, I'm I'm you know I'm nothing I'm not even close to being Baptist, but yet we can you and I can talk um, because we have similar focal points, right? And um, when when statements like uh, the, the Nashville statement um, or even just the um, evangelical right and the election of Trump, they made statements. They made, they made statements, not just the things that they wrote down or voted with, but they made statements that, um, that the, the, the church that they attend, that the church that they go to is, um, is, is, is a church that has forfeited um, its right to be called the church in the sense that it has no longer dealing life and it is dealing death. And I feel that those of us who are in the business of wanting to um, bring life unto the living, um, those who are just barely making it, bringing life to them, um, we will we will be the ones to rightly call, call ourselves a church because that's once once that's been forfeited, you are no longer the church. You're a club. And so I think what the unif- unification of the of the religious left will be will will transcend denominational boundaries. It'll just transcend religious boundaries, um, and and that's I think that's where the strength um, and the and the and the energy is going to come from, um, and that's and and it, and an institution that l- looks around and um, sees those who are you know barely existing and brings life to them um, will will rightly be called the church in my opinion. Yeah, that's a great point, and uh, I think that's really also going to be um, incumbent on geographical situations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I I have friends out west who are kind of like me, you know, like uh, they're, they're not your prototypical liberal, but they're not conservatives. And, you know, they're, they're sort of this weird, mushy, whatever middle ground used to be, um, you know, Bill Clinton type Southern Baptist slash centrist, you know, that <laughs> really kind of do believe in, in working together to, to solve all problems, but also listening to people, but also, you know, forging ahead. Um, but here in the South, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, so for instance, I went, I went to the Southern 500. I like NASCAR. I grew up with it. It's a terrible affliction I have. And I, uh, <laughs> I've never seen so many Confederate flags at, mm. at that track. And I've been going there since 2002. 
at Darlington. And I've never seen, and it's a Southern 500, and it used to have a Confederate flag on the logo and all that stuff. But after uh, Dylan Roof um, committed his massacre at, at Mother Emanuel down in Charleston in 2015, uh, there was a call by NASCAR leadership and, and a lot of the fans and a lot of the drivers. And at the 2015 race at Labor Day, there were very few flags, Confederate flags. Um, there are actually none in the infield. So if you're watching on TV, you didn't see any. This year, I mean, driving in, I, I was DMing Thomas as I was driving in, like the things I was seeing. I mean, it was, there were Nazi flags, there were there were Confederate flags. It was astonishing, astonishing. And it felt like, oh my God, you know, like, a, a, am I participating in this by being here? Because I really do enjoy the mechanics of right. sport and the engineering of this, and I grew up around this. But I don't want to be here, you know, and I, and I saw some T-shirts that just blew my mind um, and people were walking around and it was, you know, no problem. And, it, and, if, and if I was a 250 pound muscle bound dude, I, I would just would have no, I'm not saying would have caused physical harm. But, you know, <laughs> there were some T-shirts where it, you just kind of wanted to walk up to the person and say, like, are, are, why would you wear this in public? There are 150,000 people here. Are, are you serious? Like, what is wrong with you? Um, and it, it's 2017 and Donald Trump is our president and that has emboldened a certain small minority of people to feel like, you know, this is their chance to cling onto that, that one last cleft of the rock that they can, they can claim their master racehood because, you know, the black people are too uppity and the, the Mexicans are coming over the border and we've got to reinstate, you know, farmers and, and, and coal miners and those things. And I, I don't know what to do with that here in the South, um, but it, it's definitely making inroads into the religious conversations. So I, I agree. Like, yes, there is a place for the religious left, um, whether it's in Florida or, or in Colorado or you know, in, in places that are a little less, I guess, um, doomed by history, as Faulkner would say, mm-hmm. like, like the South is. But, um, you know, when you when you look at someone who, who can make decisions like Jeff Sessions today, you know, who's from Alabama, and you think about his past and, and the decision he made today by going up and, and giving that, you know, weasel of a person speech about uh, young people who've, who've come into our country, like... I don't know. I don't know what we do as, as churches and, and religious uh, institutions. Besides saying that, you know what, the 1980s tactic of saying, well, we love all people. And we're, like the PCUSA, Thomas, you know, their, their hard-hitting yeah. statement, well, <laughs> we're going to make the hard decision not to decide. <laughs> Which, that was literally a statement. It was supposed yeah. to my hair out. Or, or you know, us, us cooperative Baptists who say, well, we're going through a two-year illumination project and nothing has come of that and and i'm going to say that and if you're listening and you're cbf like please correct me um susie but uh, the the idea that this this reflective period where we need to pull back and really think about things and and be accommodating that doesn't seem to be working either and that just really scares me so that's not a good place to to leave it or or to move the conversation but anyway I, i just um I don't know, and, and think about what you're doing, you know, Reverend Larkin, with, with your amazing group of, of students that, that you talk about. You know, I, I'm, I'm 
always curious, like, how do you keep that fire of of inspiration, but also um, introspection and, and saying, like, well, you might see this on TV, but, you know, here's here's the larger picture of what that means in, in the Christian tradition. You know, those those types of questions, if that if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's you. You really want me to answer that? Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, I've only been teaching for a month. Yeah, but yeah. so <laughs> that the first month it defines everything. I know. So far. <laughs> oh, you think you think, but no. That... Um, but I'm well. It's 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 what's what's interesting is um, I I'm sort of hardwired to throw myself into everything that I do that I'm passionate about. So I the, these students every day get all of me. Um, and I'm usually very exhausted and grumpy by the end of the day. So the people who really need me, like my kids, my husband, they get the short end of the straw there. Um, or the short straw, short end of the stick. It's the short straw. I can never get those things clear. Anyway. Um, I think one of the things that I have to, um, always, I think the more exhausting thing to kind of balance is not, is holding back the, deluge that is everything I want them to know and embrace and like letting that slowly trickle out. Like that's, I, I can't just, you know, rip. I mean, these are, these are, these are kids that are in a, you know, wealthy town in in Louisiana and their worldview is very different. And I can just slowly, like a little bit like water torture, you know, just like drip, 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 you know, and then getting them, getting some of them to start to open up more about, um, their own beliefs and their own ideas. Um, and the class that I teach right now is a class that's organized and designated as this 11th and 12th grade theology class where you're supposed to come in and kind of face all those questions you have about your own faith, um, and all the doubts and the fears and, you know, all these things that you've been learning in this Episcopal school up until now, because we want them to be prepared when they go out into the university. We don't want them to feel like they're not standing on solid ground and that they can have conversations with other people without feeling attacked. And so building a foundation off of their doubts and fears and, you know, kind of giving them more solid ground to stand on, giving them the words to use in dialogue. That's sort of what this class is. One of my secret desires for this class is also to be an area where um, students feel these high school students who are wrestling with just becoming adults, right? They're on that cusp. They're about to, you know, formulate their own ideas and their own theories about the world. And I feel like I have them right where I want them and it create a free space with them where they can start telling me exactly what they're thinking. And what's interesting is, is that um, a lot of them, you know, they don't like to necessarily talk in class, but I get, they all write essay responses to essays that we read uh, for, for class. And it's interesting to see the ones that are starting to lean in a direction towards like really considering the other as not just other and stranger and therefore different and not like me, but like me that's my neighbor. Um, and to see that slowly, slowly turning that wheel, um, that's where that's, that's what I feel like I can do at least in a semester's time. Right. Um, with, with kids whose natural reaction is to rebel against adult authority. (laughs) Um, and so (laughs) that's, that's sort of how I, I view my whole entire kind of mission in that class is just to get them to stop contemplating their navel and to look outward. 
um, and to see the other people, see these other people as your neighbor with whom you are justified, you know, like this is it. it God for God so loved the world, you know, um, not just you, you know, not just your town. Like it's, it's bigger than, you know, it's bigger than, um, you know, America is not the city on a hill, you know, getting them to start looking outward more and more and more. And I, you know, that's a harder process. Um, but even in a month, I can see with their language that they're using. Um, for instance, I have to deal a lot with just the gender pronoun man. Yeah. Man was created. And I'm, I'm constantly correcting it. And then I get essay responses the third time around where it's clear that they're wrestling with it because some of them, like in one essay, I'll see humanity, humanity, man, man, people, 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 people. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> that's progress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, and like explaining to them, you know, why we're doing that and um, not just because like, oh, our teachers are crazy feminist, but it actually, you know, it has a ram- it has ramifications um, in our communication. And so that's literally it's like baby steps. It's just pushing, just taking the envelope and just moving it a couple of centimeters and getting them used to that and then moving it a little bit more. Um, what I really want to do is just open up the floodgates and let them get just like get swept away um, in everything that I know and believe. Um, but I need to, I, that the, so the most exhausting part for me is holding, holding back that, um, that passion um, for proclamation um, and just giving them little bits here and there to kind of chew on and digest. Yeah. I, I remember when I used to teach eighth grade, um, I, had a, I had a student who, uh, just was a voracious reader and I always wanted to give her great books to read. And, um, you know, one time I was like, I have this Chuck Palahniuk book. Maybe I should give her, you know, like fight club type book. And I was like, maybe I should let her read. No, I shouldn't let her, you know, I I don't want to pass that one on to her, but, and, and we're still friends and, and, you know, like it's so cool to see those relationships develop when you, when you, um, make those, those connections with your students. But, you know, it, uh, for instance, there's, there was a Politico poll today that, that said 70, and we'll, I guess we'll start wrapping up on this, 76% uh, of uh, voters said that uh, the DACA program should be allowed to stay, and that only 18% of the people polled said that they should you know, be deported, which when you look at what uh, you know, our attorney general said or what you know, President Trump has said, that type of rule from them of – uh, rule from the minority, I guess. It, it just seems like such a a strange um, paradigm, and and I know conservatives kind of felt the same way under under the Obama administration, but for the most part, you know, Obama did not, for, for my <laughs> more centrist, I guess, point of view, Obama didn't like go against three fourths of the American public and say, oh, we're going to do this whether you like it or not. Um, it, it just feels as if right now would be a very difficult time to be something like a teacher or a preacher or someone who's trying to proclaim or, or someone who's trying to, you know, uphold um, the, the gospel narrative and, and make sense of the world. Um, because that, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I don't know. I, I just don't. But it's also yeah, it's a tough it place to be, but I think, it's, I think it's one of the most important places to be, right? Because I think one of the most important things that Lauren mentioned was like at the heart of it, you have to build relationships with people and get to know them. Right. And you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from saying, well, all we need is love. Cause I, I don't think that that's necessarily true though. I do think that that is pretty important. Um, 
you just have to get to know people, right? I mean, it's it's really hard to hate people that you know, right? That are really your neighbors, um, and and when you begin to think about other people, right? Then, like, if you want to talk about the you know the um, the greatest commandment and the second one that's like it, which is you know love your neighbor as yourself. Um, part of that, the first step of that is changing your conception of who's your neighbor, right? And, and I think that 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 happens uh, for for a lot of people when they're younger, right? It's it's a lot harder to change those conceptions when you're our age, um, and and so yeah, I, I think it's a tough place to be, but I think it's um, it's probably a more important place to be than on Twitter most of the time, right? <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I've, yeah. Yeah, on second thought, maybe not. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. Sometimes I am with my neighbor on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. When that's the that's the other thing, right? Is, is one of the comments that you made earlier, Sam, about you know it kind of being geographic or, or location based, which I, I think is an important point. But also, what we can't miss, and kind of how we started the show, is. Um, the democratization of the web, right, has allowed people to build communities outside of their geographic areas. Yeah, and, and I think that, that that, as much as anything, is and is helping and will continue to help uh, fuel uh, kind of all that we're talking about this evening. Yeah, and if you read the uh, conspiracy blogs I read, you know, you can see how Google and, and Twitter are trying to crack down on Milo and the people on on the the alt right. And silence the people in the alt right because they're they're afraid of that and it cuts into their globalist conspiracy to take over the world with our tiki wow. torches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> tiki um, torches. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> lot, lot, uh, lots of this that. has been this has been a great conversation, Lauren. Do you do you um you have any last words that you want to share with us? We didn't have any kind of script for this. Uh, we did not tell. her. Or what she was getting into. Um, no, I had no idea. She kind of came in blind, so we're really appreciative of that. Yeah, we're really horrible um, hosts, but we're really appreciative that you've come on and just just kind of joined the conversation with us this evening. I loved it, and I like the freeform um, aspect because otherwise it just sounds canned. Yeah. So I'm glad that I was kind of able to wing it. I did check the notes though, right before I got on, and I was like, huh, nothing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, we had notes. I just there was a there's talk a... with you, Thomas. Oh, yeah. I didn't even look. At it was it. a yeah. That... It was a funny cartoon of Jesus getting a preacher to say something that wasn't true or something. I don't that know. Was the it, was really, it was really funny. Um, but anyway, no, I'm fine with that. Thank. I'm I'm actually very honored to be on. Tell tell. Well, them, we've appreciated it. Tell them about the time I fought the dragon, <laughs> and and the preacher says that never happened. Jesus. Oh wait. Yeah, that is funny. I was supposed to tell you about, I'm willingly throwing this out there. The reason why this whole entire right, thing started was because started. I have a stink bug story. Oh, yeah, that's right. You you ate a stink bug. Yeah. <laughs> I did. We're totally I bearing did. the and lead the story, here. This, the, it, it, they taste like cilantro. Um, and I, uh, I, I found this out. Um, I used to have a garden. When I lived in Pittsburgh, I had a really nice... Um, home garden and I would collect all my vegetables and everything and you know I would wash them and leave them out to dry but Pittsburgh had a horrible stink bug problem and I um, they landed on everything everything they were all over the house in fact my son when he was about two would walk around going everywhere 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 
there talking oh. about the stink bugs because I was always freaked out about them. Um, and so one day I had to go to a ladies group thing, which um, I just don't like to go to those things ever. <laughs> and I was slotted to bring the salad. So I was like, okay, fine. So I take the salad out of the strainer. It's been sitting there for an hour, like drying off. I make the salad. I bring it to the ladies event. And I'm eating this big plate of salad. And I start tasting cilantro. And I think to myself, what in the world? Like, I did not put cilantro. I make all my homemade, I make homemade dressings. I said, I, I did not put cilantro in the salad or in the dressing whatsoever. And I'm sitting there and then it starts to get like more crunchy. And then no. it just dawns on me. I've eaten a stink bug <laughs> and I get up from the table and run off to the bathroom and immediately just a dinner goes out with the way it came in and everything is, it was immediate. It was horrible, horrible to the point where I could not ingest cilantro whatsoever for like the next like six months to a year. Um, and my husband teased me relentlessly, relentlessly. And so this is sort of like the, the kind of fun part for me relentlessly. Every time I had some salad or something, he'd be like, Oh, you want some stink bug with that? <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, this it's not funny anymore. It's not funny anymore. But then finally, one day we're sitting at dinner and he takes a bite and he's like, hey, did you put cilantro in the salad? And I said, nope. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I just ate a stink bug. And so I was like, divine victory, because I did not do that. I certainly did not put a stink bug in my husband's <laughs> oh my meal. God. But certainly he got not. stink bugs. <laughs> certainly not. Uh. I'm, I can be mean, but never that crafty and mean. Um, and so anyway, that's that's how I know stink bugs taste like cilantro and will make your guts just absolutely miserable. They're not they're not digestible by really any creature. They're um, the, the there's these the Chinese wasps that can kill them, but there's very few things that can kill them or want to eat them. And I know why. Yeah, I know why now. Yeah. We we had so. I, when I was in Asheville, we had a huge infestation like in Asheville, the whole whole area, and uh, woke up one night because I heard some noise and I I had like a it was a little tiny house we didn't have air conditioning so we had like a, a window unit in in our house our home and uh, I kind of pulled back the curtains and it, on the back side of the curtains was just like a hundred stink bugs and and it was the grossest thing I've ever oh. seen. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just, yeah, they get everywhere when they it, it kind of infiltrate. Luckily here in Columbia, it's too hot for them. So we have palmetto bugs, which are, which are fun. Um, or, you know, yeah. You, oh, palmetto bugs, man. I remember those. Yeah. God. They're flying cockroaches. I, I, and they're massive. I took out the trash last night. A palmetto bug landed on my shirt. Like as I'm walking out at nine o'clock to take the trash out, a palmetto bug just like flies and just lands on me. And I was like, oh, get, uh, don't, don't do that. <laughs> You, you become used to them, but I, I would not want to eat one of those either. Although, evi oh, no. evidently, you can milk oh. them. They, they have milk, and their milk is very high in protein. What? Yeah. It's, you can milk a bug? You can milk a, a, palm, a, a cockroach. <laughs> we call them palmetto bugs. To make... <laughs> None of that sounds right. I, I'll retweet it. I saw, <laughs> thing, I, I saw a thing on, it was CNN, uh, of all things earlier, as we began the show. And I almost hit retweet, and I was like, nah, I need context. So, yeah, <laughs> lots of protein. <laughs> Tell them about the time I fought the dragon, Thomas. That never happened. Lol, tell them anyway. I love that. And he's like a Methodist. <laughs> yeah. He's like a Methodist minister too. He's an old white guy, and he's got the the uh, not not to make fun of old white people, but he's got the the uh, the square glasses like old Methodist ministers wear, and and the stole. 
Yeah. He could be Episcopalian. Yeah. Don't don't they wear like uh they, they wear like belts or something, right? Like like Ric Flair. No. Oh Just no, like we do Cassock and Surplus. And stole Cassocks, Cassocks, right. I'm my, my, one of my best friends is yeah. a uh, Lutheran minister and he, he has a cassock. I, I had to I had to preach at a yeah. at a uh Christian the Disciples of Christ Church a couple of weeks ago. Well, I didn't have to, they asked me to. And uh I, I couldn't find my, my black robe. So I was like, so, uh, dude, do you have a, uh, a robe I can wear? He's like, you can wear my cassock. And I was like, I don't want to roll up in there all Lutheran. Like, I... <laughs> anyway. That's funny. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lauren. Um, it's been fantastic. Yeah, thank yeah, no you. Problem. You're awesome. Thank you. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, you can find Lauren on Twitter. Um, are we allowed to give out your Twitter handle? I've been reading. Yeah, please. You, so. uh, Lauren's on Twitter at Lauren R.E. Larkin. Um I'm on Twitter at Thomas Whitley. Sam is on Twitter at Sam Harrelson. As always, you can find their great podcast at thinking.fm.